Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, uh, coming to you from Austin, Texas. And today, it's my great privilege to interview Professor Adam Blackler, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of Wyoming. And Adam today will be talking about uh, his new book. So uh, first of all, Adam, thanks for joining us. (laughs) here from Wyoming. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, it's, what can I say? It's, uh, it's a delight. So uh, let's, let's get right into it and talk a, a little bit about Adam and his book. Uh, so the book is called An Imperial Homeland, Forging German Identity in Southwest Africa, just out with Pennsylvania State University Press and its series, Germans Beyond Europe, uh, sponsored by the Max Cotta Research Institute. Dr. Blackler is an assistant professor of history at the University of Wyoming. He's a historian of modern Germany and Southern Africa, and his research emphasizes the transnational dimensions of imperial occupation and settler colonial violence in the 19th and 20th centuries. His scholarly and teaching interests also include the political and social dynamics of Germany's Weimar Republic, and the interdisciplinary fields of Holocaust and genocide studies and international human rights. So uh, among his other publications, I'd like to mention, these include a co-edited anthology, which is entitled After the Imperialist Imagination, Two Decades of Research on Global Germany and Its Legacies, and a chapter in a multi-volume collection called A Cultural History of Genocide. So I want to get right to the questions, and I always ask um, my first um, book writers what motivated them. So Adam, tell us, how did you get to an imperial homeland? Yes, Stephen. Well, thank you. Um, 
I would answer this question this way. Um, the, I was the beneficiary of an incredible, uh, I guess I would say, advising team uh, during my PhD years at the University of Minnesota. Uh, so first of all, Eric Weitz and Gary Cohen, uh, when this project was initially a dissertation, uh, roughly a decade ago now, um, really gave some just steadfast, excellent advice on, on how to think about this, what it would mean to actually write a holistic, and by that, and I'll explain that later, but what it would mean to write a, a holistic history of German imperialism, in this case in Namibia, um, and really just gave some steadfast examples of uh, and, and, and uh, suggestions on uh, um, where to go and, and people to, to, to chat with. Um, uh, but in addition to that, uh, I had the great opportunity when I was there to also spend a fair amount of time in my third and fourth years uh, in Namibia, in South Africa, and in Botswana. Um, uh, Helena Poldat-McCormick was a member on my committee uh, who made that a possibility and actually getting to go to some of these countries and meet people, interact with uh, other colleagues and certainly do some work in archives really made this uh, the kind of project I wanted it to be. So uh, in essence, it was uh, partially the, I was the beneficiary of a, of a great experience in graduate school, but also then uh, very fortunate to have some, some research opportunities to take me not just to Germany on several occasions, but Southern Africa itself. Um, and so I would say that is really how this project began, uh, as I hope all students out there uh, will experience through their graduate networks. I think that's a great start. And, and I love um, the fact that you've offered a tribute to um, the historian Eric Eric Weitz. I, I read his work as a graduate student, and um, I, I think it's a, a fitting memorial, um, your book, uh, to, Eric, to Eric, who passed away from cancer, if I recall, in the summer of 2021. So I, I'm glad that you mentioned that, uh, Adam. Uh, and, and I wanted actually to kind of follow up on um, your statement about doing research in Namibia and in South Africa and Botswana. So where did you go exactly? Can you explain to our listeners perhaps what, what archives um, you found and, and maybe if your intentions changed along the way from you when you first started this as a graduate student? Yes, um, I can say just right off the bat that my my intentions or the project itself very much did change when I went to these countries, uh, which I think is a really good thing. It's something that I learned along the way that we may go to these countries and, and it could be any place with ideas. And that's great. Um, but allowing the work, allowing your ideas to to grow and evolve and, and mature uh, was something that I really was was, again, very fortunate in having some time. Um, an opportunity to allow to occur, um, uh, and so in that in that uh, in that manner, um, when I went to Namibia, the main locations I went to was the uh, Namibia National Archives. Spent some time in some of the main research libraries there, uh, specifically in Windhoek. Uh, I did not conduct any interviews uh, per se, um, but I did chat. Uh, I would say professionally with a lot of of descendants of survivors uh, in some of these locations. And while I do not cite any of them, uh, a lot of their experiences I really carried with uh, as best I could 
um, when I was writing this this book. Uh, and so I think that's something that's worth um, mentioning. Um, the same thing was true in uh, South Africa. Um, I mostly worked in one of the National Archives in Cape Town, uh, one of the main uh, state libraries in Johannesburg, uh, and then also um, had a chance to, to work in one of the state libraries in uh, Habarone, Botswana. Uh, so it was, it was official sites, if you will, that for the most mm. part, that in yeah, these yeah, countries yeah. where I went. Um, but what was so amazing, um, and again, I really appreciate the kind words about uh, Eric White's, uh, again, a, a, a deep loss to us all, um, uh, but was just a tremendous mentor. And he gave me some advice when I went to Namibia for the first time to really explore the archive. I was, again, very fortunate. I keep saying this. I had a couple of weeks uh, on several occasions uh, to get in. And uh, the, the, the staff there was just amazing. You know, it's <laughs> I had unlimited mm, yeah, full yeah. times. <laughs> it was just great. You know, something right. you don't really get all that often. Um, and, uh, a lot of these to my, to the best of my knowledge, and, um, I, I don't want to, to overstate this. I don't want, I want to be careful, but to the best of my knowledge, most especially in Vindhoek at the National Archives, um, I really think I went through a lot of collections that, that if, if no one, if, if anyone has, it has not been for a while. Um, and so going through these and really finding, uh, to me at least, what was, was new information, holding the original treaty, uh, uh, one of which that Hendrik Fitboy himself signed, these really powerful moments. And um, I think in, in doing all of that, it really allowed me to emphasize uh, what was, is one of the goals of this book. And that is, again, the holistic perspective of this history, but specifically to emphasize the role that Africans themselves had in the very violent evolution of this occupation. Uh, that is not to say that they were willing or, or, or anything else, uh, um, uh, supporters of it, certainly not. But their resistance and, and the fact that they were able to uh, demonstrate the, the fallacy of German colonial fa uh, fantasies um, uh, demonstrates, again, just how, how powerful it is to get into these, these spaces and then demonstrate that uh, to a larger audience in our scholarly work. Um, and I know I am by no means the first person to do that kind of work, but it's something that I'm really proud of with this project. Um, and it was those experiences in Africa that really made that a possibility. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great place to, I think, to introduce um, your argument and, and the chapters in the book. Um, I was noting as I was reading it, your, your coverage of really the, the big questions, and there are many big questions in German history um, about nationalism, colonialism, the formats, the imperialism, genocide, and all those sorts of things. So I guess the question I would, I would have about this shattering of, of German cultural superiority as you present it um, is how the sources that you gathered from those archives that you mentioned fueled, fueled your argument, if you could state the argument maybe in a sentence or two about how, how the facade of imperial fantasy um, gave way to colonial reality. I, I know I'm putting words in your mouth, but um, maybe tell us a little bit about, about the argument and then about how you started to lay out the, the chapters with the evidence that you collect. Sure, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I will answer it this way. The main focus in the book, as you, uh, uh, again, very kindly uh, have read, 
um, is an emphasis on what I refer to as colonial encounters. Um, and specifically, there are two forms of colonial encounters that I, I, I develop throughout the book. The first is informal. In other words, uh, what people in the metropole itself learned, read about, maybe visited with people that either either Africans themselves that were forced or so-called voluntarily brought to Germany in one of these horrific uh, uh, colonial exhibitions, race exhibitions, um, something like that, experiencing it and actually seeing what they thought empire was supposed to be in a place like Berlin's Tiergarten or Treptower Park. Um, and then there's the formal colonial encounter, specifically those that actually do go overseas um, and are confronted again, either in a, again, supposed there's no such thing as a, as an a-violent or non-violent colonial encounter, but uh, either in a, in a, in a, in a setting in Windhoek or either on the military, on a military battlefield. Um, and in both situations, these formal and informal, um, in, in both cases, these experiences demonstrated that German forces could not simply dominate these peoples, and it's a very diverse population, uh, Namibia still to this day, Southwest Africa at the time. Um, they could not just dominate them simply by sheer force of will, which is, a, I think, one of the most important significant elements of, of a colonial fantasy of the time period. Um, and so that process, or that reality, very quickly uh, forced Germans, settlers, and metropolitans to start to question, well, is this colonial uh, venture worth it? And if so, what is the ultimate outcome of it? Um, and so that, those deep series of questions, I think, are really at the root of this book. Um, uh, and so when you're with your question on the sources, then what's so amazing is is just how vocal and how powerful people like Hendrik Fitboy again and Samuel Maharero, uh, I think in some cases, people that that uh, um, some of your listeners might be more familiar with. But in addition, people like Nicodemus Kavakina, uh, Masana Noreseb, um, uh, lesser known folks, at least outside of Namibia, that wrote and and challenged uh, German leadership after they arrived in 1884 and, and basically said, we're not going to listen to you or we're only going to sign this so-called protection treaty because it's mm, advantageous right. to, to our local situation, but that doesn't really mean we're going to follow it. And so being confronted with these very re real, uh, I would say, um, uh, challenges to colonial rule helped or helped indicate and and unfortunately demonstrated the very violent evolution uh, of colonial occupation because when the specifically the metropolitan leadership discovered this was going to take a lot more people on the ground and a lot more economic uh, support um, and and various other political justifications. That is when you begin to see the development of Namibia from a protectorate into a mm. settlement colony. It's a great point. Um, yeah. And, and that is really, I think, this evolution again and, and the demonstration that Africans, while of course not wanting that to occur, their success, they were unfortunately victims of their success in many respects. Um, and that's one of the, the elements of the book. For mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, I want to break it down a little bit now in, in the book. I noticed that you have 
um, an introduction and conclusion, of course, but you have six chapters and three parts. So just for our listeners here who should buy the book um, from Penn State University Press, the three parts are uh, part one, national aspirations from 1842 to 1884. Part two, colonial encounters, I think is in many ways the centerpiece of the book. Um, 1884 to 1904, and then an imperial homeland, 1905 to 1914. So I, I, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about um, your roadmap, how, how exactly you organize the story of, of domination and, and resistance. I mean, like this is, you know, to avoid not repeating yourself. Um, but, but how did you structure this um, I guess, layout, if we can call it that, from national to colonial to imperial in the time yeah. frame of the 1840s up to World War One. Yeah, um, I think, uh, I'll, uh, absolutely. Um, the main, I would say, goal of structuring the book the way I did is I thought it would be very beneficial to show how the colonial experience transformed German society as well as Germans and Africans themselves across a, uh, across a much longer time span than has typically been done in the, in the historiography, at least the last 20 years. Most uh, works, I think, begin uh, that talk about Namibia typically begin in 1884 when uh, the formal moment, April of 1884, when Namibia was formally colonized. Um, and so I thought there was a lot of potential in getting into the archives and really doing the, the work on the ground as best I could to really expose and, and showcase just how significant the, the, the 19th century was and, and not just the colonial moment, but the pre-colonial moment. And as you know, Stephen, this is also, broadly speaking, the, the mid and early 19th century is significant because not only was Germany not a, an official pre-colonial power, Germany didn't exist. <laughs> um, and so I thought, I thought from a, uh, 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 it's a work of nationalism, on uh, nationalism, of course, and national origin, um, but I thought there would be some significance in, in showcasing how these two notions, uh, colonialism and colonial occupation uh, and the potential of it, as well as what it would mean to even be German in a United State, how these two ideas develop, in some cases, parallel over time when neither exist. Um, and so uh, to, to maybe, dem to, to maybe uh, give credit where credit is due, a lot of this, these early ideas, um, uh, I was a beneficiary of reading, of course, Susanna Zontop's very famous book and important book, Colonial Fantasies, German Colonial Fantasies, that does something similar in the 18th century. And so that was the inspiration behind it. Um, but so in my case, what I really thought would be important is the, the part one, as you mentioned, really showing how colonial fantasies emerged and national fantasies emerged um, uh, in parallel to one another, but showing how they actually influence one another. So uh, sailors going overseas, the German parliament uh, at the end of the Wormatz in 1848, uh, the Frankfurt National Assembly, talking about colonial matters at the same time they're trying to figure out what they even mean and want in a, in a, in a United State. And then, of course, how, unfortunately, uh, for liberal nationalists, those ideas uh, f uh, fail uh, in 1849. But then almost all immediately, uh, uh, print culture 
picks up these same ideas and when they could avoid the censors, they spread them. And it's the novelists that, <laughs> a good point. Yeah, yeah. that just take off in ways that are, are profound. And so these ideas continue and then ultimately help influence, I think, um, the state that to a degree comes into being in 1871. And this is by no means a, a work of teleology. I, I am not trying to be, I certainly am hopefully not clumsy uh, in my analysis. But in essence, this demonstrates how colonialism really did matter. In, 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 in a, to a degree, it might be as simple as that, to show that even in a pre-colonial era, uh, colonialism and the potential of it did matter to a lot more people uh, in Germany and what becomes Germany than a lot of, I think, historians and scholars have, have acknowledged up until very recently. And so then by the time you get, as you mentioned, to the, the second and ultimately the third part of the book, the actual moments of actual colonial domination, there were generations that were familiar with at least, again, the so-called potential of colonialism. Um, and it's in that space then when they are confronted, as we discussed uh, previously, um, by Africans who not only uh, had every right, uh, rightfully so, to defend their land and their culture, but then were able to do so successfully by increasingly more Germans, including those that in theory had no interest in the colonial uh, project, increasingly defend it. And they start to use national language and national justifications uh, to do so. Uh, and that then ultimately exp explains uh, the third part of the book, how it becomes so violent uh, in terms of, of juridical legislation and policies, all the way, of course, to the most infamous example in the case of Namibia, the German Herero Nama so-called war. Yeah, more accurately, that's what I want to talk the about. Genocide. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, I, I think that's that's a, a really you know strong point that you're making. I'm thinking about the, the continuities which you're drawing from the, the 1840s to the 1860s up to that that seminal moment. In 1884, I you know I like you know the fact that you're you're including all of the different German sciences, right? I mean, in like sort of in the spirit of Andrew Zimmerman, um, you've you've got the element of ethnology and anthropology and you know, geography, of course, from the the years of Humboldt and Ritter. Um, I, your coverage of the magazines, I think, really struck me. So the Carl uh, Andre and the Andreas, you know, sort of maps and atlases. Um, so, do you think that the leap from this period before 1884 to the Herero and Nama genocide is is a is a fair point? I mean, how do you make that intervention? I guess. Um, critically in, in the historiography, given, like you mentioned, Susanna Zantop's work, but uh, Vailer's work and, and the sort of others. So I, I guess I'm, I'm asking, you know, to get to that point without teleology and, and without continuity, what, what's your trick, if I can ask that? Um, how, how do you do that without smoothing, smoothing out the, the story from prehistory to the actual history of colonial violence and settler occupation? That's, that is the question, um, Stephen, I'll be honest. And it's, it's the one I, I've spent the most time thinking about because, uh, um, as you rightfully stated, um, when, when one thinks of, uh, up to this present day, when one thinks of Germany's colonial occupation of Namibia, perhaps the very first thing one thinks of is the genocide. Um, and again, rightfully so, some incredibly important work, necessary work has been done by scores of individuals 
Um, but with no disrespect to them and their work, what I thought the most important thing I could do with this project is to not look at that moment, that, that re really violent moment, as a natural or as an inevitable endpoint. And in fact, instead, in this focus again on, on the 19th century, try and, 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 sh and, and emphasize and display how Germany's colonial project developed, uh, still violent, still horrific in, in every way. Um, uh, and in doing so, then maybe explain how the genocide itself was then possible. Um, and so it is certainly present throughout the work. And so I think, again, in focusing on, you, you had mentioned uh, um, uh, Angela Zimmerman, but also um, uh, I would also include Matt Fitzpatrick has, has written a lot on this liberal imperialism. Um, a lot of these individuals that either advocate for or actually participate in the colonial project in the mid and then eventually after in the mid 19th century and then eventually after 1884. Um, are individuals that do so predominantly for economic reasons or, or you know, I, the, when I talk about these, we would today refer to it, these hyper-masculine notions of adventure and bravado and, and supposed courage um, going overseas and trying to become a man. Um, I think there are elements that, that uh, we could tap into and say, on the one hand, yes, that ex that's somewhat uh, a product of the time period. We're seeing similar things, of course, in, in the British Empire and the French Empire and so many others, U.S. Empire. Um, but the, the potential for mass violence in, in all of these colonialisms were present. Um, and I think that when we begin to, again, focus on the resistance that these individuals face uh, when, again, they get to Namibia, the very real fact that they could not, through their own force of will, colonize Namibia in a way that they thought would be easy and, and immediately lead to profit, we then can see how, in a quick matter of time, those that went overseas with supposedly grand intentions uh, and nonviolent intentions in their minds suddenly then justify violence and, and segregation and the establishment of, of so-called Eingeborenenwerft uh, and native reservations, again, so-called, among others. Um, uh, and that also, I think, Stephen, I'll, I'll end with this, uh, allows us to, I think, consider Namibia and more accurately Germany's colonization of it in a larger context. Uh, you had mentioned kindly uh, one of my transnational uh, goals in this project, uh, is to not reduce or, or de-emphasize uh, Germany's uh, colonial violence. It ab absolutely uh, was very present and we're right to talk about it. Um, but when we begin to, to look at Germany's colonial project in this space, especially at the turn of the 20th century, it is very similar um, to a lot, of other, a lot of others in the region, in the case of, of course, the British again, the French, the Portuguese. Uh, but the Germans themselves were aware of what was going on in other parts of the world, too, other colonial empires. Um, uh, Karl Dürnberg, for other, among others, regularly referenced what the United States was doing and had done uh, in a place like, for instance, where I am speaking you, to you from, places like Wyoming, uh, for example. Didn't mention Wyoming, but of course mentioned the western United States. Um, and so this was very much a, a, an outgrowth, the potential for genocide was an outgrowth, I think, of so much of the, the violent justifications that emerged in this age of colonialism. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I wanted to shift from that transnational point that you've made 
um, to something that you've said a couple of times about resistance. So my next question for you is is really about the um, mid-chapters, chapter three and chapter four, in which you're discussing the challenges to German supremacy. And I think it's fair to say German white supremacy um, in in the German um, controlled Southwest. So talk a little bit maybe about your examples. I I think this book is really strong on examples and characters among the the diverse and and multifaceted Bantu society, as you mentioned. So, I mean, who who are the Ova Herrero and what are your sources like for for them and for the the Witboy Nama? Um, How how do you begin to demonstrate what happens after the signing of the Protection Treaty in October of of 1885? If we can get into maybe some of the names and some of the specifics of of resistance or or sometimes cooperation when this veneer of of fantasy begins to fall apart. Sure, sure. Uh, Thank you for that. I'm I'm really I'm really pleased that you found these these examples um, rich, uh, because I will admit somewhat biasly, I suppose I did, too. Uh, And that's why I wanted to include them. I I just was amazed and fascinated uh, by these by these examples. Who are they? Tell us our listeners here here at New Books who they are. Yes. So Hendrik Vitboy, for example, you uh, I'd mentioned him earlier, um, uh, leader of the Vitboy Nama. The Nama were a very diverse, uh, multifaceted uh, community that still, for the most part, lives in what is today southern, south central Namibia. Um, uh, the Ova Herrero are a Bantu uh, population, also very diverse. Uh, I don't want to s- suggest that any of these populations are monolithic. Um, the main communities that I talk about in the book are led by Samuel Maharero, uh, who eventually becomes the first paramount chief uh, recognized by the German colonial government uh, as such in uh, 1895. Um, but there are other leaders as well. Uh, Nicodemus Kavakuna. Uh, who was the leader of, a, of an eastern Ovojorero Bantu community. Uh, when I say eastern, the eastern part of, of what is present-day Namibia. Um, and, then, and then others that I, I appreciate it. There are so many uh, uh, people that we don't often hear about. Jan Yonker Afrikaner, Yonker Afrikaner. Um, uh, individuals that themselves, uh, these two, in, in the case of Afrikaner, both Afrikaners, um, uh, didn't actually engage with the Germans, the German officials, uh, so much as certainly as a bit boy, but their communal engagements, uh, oftentimes violent with with other African populations, um, uh, regional violence. Uh, uh, in some cases, the Germans uh, observed this and tried to take advantage of them, um, uh, take advantage, I should say, of, of the regional violence. Um, and so these are among the, 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 there are others, of course, but these are among the main African voices that I try and bring out um, in this book. Uh, and one of the reasons I'm able to do that um, Someone like Andrew Vitboy, again, was a prolific writer, uh, an incredible journalist. Um, he had scores of, of correspondence with German officials all the way from the very first uh, colonial governor, uh, um, uh, Heinrich Ernst Goering, uh, who coincidentally was son of Hermann Goering, or excuse me, the father of, of the future Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering, uh, one of these, these strange coincidences in, in the very violent modern German history. Um, but correspondence with him all the way to Theodor Leutwein, who was uh, this very influential governor of German Southwest Africa for 12 years. 
And so we, we can gain so much from, from these accounts to say nothing of diplomatic correspondence that all of these people I had mentioned uh, had shared with, with others, uh, uh, British officials, uh, to, to a lesser degree, French diplomats engaged and, and, and wrote back uh, to, again, someone like a Samuel Maharero. Um, and you could find these not only in the German Ausfericus Amt, but also in the archive. And so it's it's in many respects, and I, I hesitate to use this phrase because we hear it a lot, but in many respects, this is presenting the other side of, of the colonial experience. It is still one again laced in, in colonial violence, um, but it's demonstrating just how engaged, uh, in, the, in this case, these African leaders were. Um, and in doing so, then, how, how informed their populations were of what was going on on the ground, that is, and then how, and, and to a degree explains why they were able to resist so effectively. And I think resistance took a, a number of, of, of ways. We could think, of course, military resistance, but also simply ignoring the presence of Germans, uh, carrying on with everyday life as if the Germans didn't matter at all. Uh, and that actually proved to be, in some cases, the most successful uh, form of resistance. It, it infuriated some of these colonial leaders that their proclamations went just unheeded. Uh, like, how could you possibly ignore us? That was, in some cases, the, the reaction, um, at least in the formative years. Um, and then, of course, what Germans themselves in the metropole were reading about. Uh, this was, this was um, as, I, as you, you mentioned earlier, uh, written about extensively, not just in pro-colonial newspapers in Germany, but uh, newspapers and journals in uh, in Namibia itself. Uh, there were three papers of record by the end of the by the turn of the century, um, but also then all of the papers of record in Germany uh, regularly featured articles, and they were not often, or very, I should say, very often not uh, positive. Um, uh, and a lot of this had to do with what they were reading and the sources they had on the ground in Namibia. Um, so I think all of that really plays into this in a lot of ways. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's just important to, to state, um, as you do in, in the last chapter, the, the numbers for the genocide. So I th correct me if I'm wrong, but we're talking about approximately 90,000 Herrero and Nama between 1904 and 1907. Is that, is that correct? During yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to make sure that we get that out there and, and cover it um, in, in the framework that you're offering. So I, I guess my next question, you know, since you mentioned diplomacy in, in talking about these erasures is if you could say something about the, the larger epistemological question of German race thinking and racial thinking. So, I mean, obviously it's, it's aggravated in the 1890s and, and after Bismarck and all of that. But one thing I found really fascinating in your research and covering the, the diplomatic maneuvering and, and, stra and strategies of, um, of, of, of Whitboy and, and others, like I, my question would be, 
how this racial thinking evolves. Is it racial thinking, spatial thinking? I mean, the critique, as you mentioned, of German primordial, primordialism is, is so strong, but is it an actual kind of explicit critique among these, these diplomats that you're talking about? How do they present that issue? Sure. I think uh, you were right to focus on the presence of race. Of course, this this civilizational notion, and again, we're predominantly, well, exclusively in in the case of Namibia, um, talking about white Germans that go overseas and try and dominate, certainly at the turn of the the 20th century, uh, uh, increasingly exclusively along their supposed racial superiority. Um, But what, to, to get to your question, while civilizational and racial justifications were always present uh, for, again, supposed colonial rule. Uh, I argue in the book that it increasingly becomes these racial differences more important because it becomes, in some ways, the only uh, uh, opportunity, if you will, or the only marker that white settlers could point to as their right to colonize Namibia. Uh, their their cultural superiority, and again, of course, I mean this always supposedly, their supposed cultural superiority was not enough to overthrow Vitboy and the, the, the remaining o- other Ovaharero populations. Their um, uh, so-called enlightened thought was not enough. Uh, in many respects, their technological superiority was not enough. Um, their agricultural practices was not enough. Um, and moreover, uh, in spite of all of those facts, um, not only when they arrived did they, were they faced with this, but they were being ignored by Africans uh, when they wanted to procure land or property or cattle. They oftentimes had to rent all of these things from all these, these, these things that they were supposedly colonizing uh, uh, from Africans themselves. And so there was an inverse in many respects. They had the hierarchical thinking, of course, from the beginning, but there was an inverse of reality on the ground. Um, and so what was then the one distinction or the one factor that a lot increasingly that a lot of, of Germans could point to, again, specifically settlers, that was their supposed racial differences. Um, and I think the, I, I want to be very careful with this because, again, racism was was an undercurrent in all of these colonial projects. And I never want to suggest otherwise, but it increasingly becomes important when in, uh, the increasing number of German settlers that arrive in Namibia, and it's approximately a little under 20,000, right at 20,000 by, 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 by the start of World War I, um, they, they arrive with a much more fervent race, belief in racial superiority than a lot of the, the colonial leadership. The colonial leadership was, was very much trying to walk a very delicate line, again, people like Theodor Leutwein, who again, harbored civilizational perspectives, but also believed that stability was more important than uh, complete authoritarian rule. Uh, it was, was, this wasn't going to be possible in his mind. Um, and increasingly, as those kinds of officials were drowned out by, by more white settlers showing up and advocating for, for violence and juridical violence and, and physical violence, um, that's when you begin to see, uh, as again, race not just as a motivating factor uh, for occupation, but in some respects, um, the, the exclusive purpose of colonialism, I would say, uh, at least in the case of Namibia. Uh, Namibia. Um, and so I, I think that's how I would, I would emphasize that evolution. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I guess my questions kind of leads you leads back into your, your interventions in historiography. I'm thinking of Michelle Moyd's work, obviously, but I think you're, you're right. Um, in the end, in later chapters to, to mention Christo O'Donnell and Nancy Reagan and, and others who were writing about um, the experiences of white German women. And I wonder if you might say a few words about this type of, of advocacy and, and how it, you know, ultimately transforms attitudes toward toward native populations, if we can use that as a category, but, but also, you know, the fears of miscegenation and the fears of intermarriage. Um, how, how did you go about researching that and incorporating um, some of the work of your, your predecessors here in, sure. in colonial yeah. history? Sure. I mean, you, and you mentioned Nancy Reagan. I would also include Laura Vildenthal. I mean, this, this, this phenomenal work that, that has been done since the mid nineties, I would say. Um, that's one of the things uh, you mentioned women. Um, I, though some foundational work has been done, I'm, I'm proud that I was actually able to, um, it, to a degree, I think, continue that engagement scholarly um, uh, because this focus on race in, colon- in the colonial sphere, uh, and the, the evolution of racist thought more accurately, uh, I think also showcases how women, uh, German women, white German women, use it as a category uh, to to advocate for themselves along gendered lines. Um, and this is one of the conclusions I know that Laura Vildenthal has made, um, that going overseas, a lot, of, a lot of German white women going overseas, they soon discovered that, wow, all of a sudden I actually have a lot more responsibility and a lot more opportunity because there are far fewer of us here and there are far fewer white Germans here uh, and, it, and German men though it's still very much a patriarchal uh, system in society, um, are forced to allow us to advocate for ourselves and, and do equal work and, and, in some cases, equal pay. And then a lot of these women that go back to Germany then uh, bring these ideas with them and, and spread them and I think, really important and, and uh, significant ways back in Germany. Um, but uh, there's also a darker side to this, as you were implying. Um, if race, uh, in this case, opened up opportunities for women socially, it unfortunately limited um, uh, the opportunities of Africans uh, uh, in, in Namibia. Um, uh, and, and in this case, if, if Germans were increasingly identifying white German women as the supposed biological culture bearers, and they are the only ones that can perform this 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 again, so-called biological responsibility, uh, then we have to protect the institution of marriage and the institutions of, uh, that, are, are, are the, that create the, the racial fabric of society to the utmost uh, uh, of their ability. And so it's the so-called Frauenfrage, as it was called in 1903. Yes, the, the, women, the woman question, how can we get more white women over to Namibia, um, uh, was very much rooted in this. Um, and then, of course, uh, as you had mentioned again, um, uh, this emphasis then, of course, parallels right with the, the emergence of anti-miscegenation laws, the emergence of segregation. Um, uh, I don't want to romanticize this too much, but before the turn of the 20th century, uh, German men, in some cases, if not encouraged, were at least given kind of a passive uh, blind eye. Or a blind eye was turned uh, if they went overseas to, uh, you know, of course, violently assault uh, black African women or in some cases engage in consensual relationships. Uh, that was that was fine. 
But that really takes a turn uh, right in the immediate, uh, um, I would say, the, the immediate moments before the Herero Nama genocide begins. And then, of course, afterward, that's when you see an, an entire end to acceptance and, and actual legal efforts to prevent those kinds of liaisons and relationships from occurring. Um, and this is, again, when you could focus on the, the import of violence in the colonial sphere as well. So elevation of white women and, and, and uh, I guess you could say a decrease of the rights and agency of, of Africans of all genders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, I'm kind of interested, Adam, in if you, you know, wrote those after you had researched those later chapters in the 1900s and 19 teens, did you actually go back and, and write the earlier stories of, of missionaries, for example, we haven't talked about your, you know, sort of like religious chauvinists, but um, how, I mean, how does that affect the retelling of, of the story? Because ultimately you have a, a prehistory of, of people who are going there with goodness in their hearts, right? And then all, all of a sudden there's that Vernichtungsgefühl um, that, that, you, that you kind of uncover that there's actually something much darker but behind that. It, it, could you describe that process? I mean, how, how, how did you go about researching? I'm, I'm dying to ask you this question. If you actually went back and started, you know, rewriting some of the earlier, his, the earlier stories with your sources. You are spot on, Stephen. I, actually, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> you got, I got it. it. <laughs> I actually, um, uh, I believe the chapter on missionaries was this, even though it's the second chapter in the book, I believe it was the second to last chapter that I, I wrote. Uh, but but it fits into this, and, you, and you'll see. Um, uh, I know you've interviewed Jeremy Best uh, as well, um, uh, among others, and um, has written a very important book on missionaries and their their work, and he provides a much more holistic history, uh, I think, of missionaries in the colonial sphere than, again, a lot of work that has been done in the past. This work is somewhat similar to that. Um, uh, It, of course, talks about them, I would say, more as Germans than as not, I guess, in comparison to to Dr. Best's work. Um, But you are right to mention that when these individuals, specifically from uh, the uh, Rhenish Mission Society, and then even before them, the, the London Mission Society, go overseas to Southern Africa, they were encouraged by their respective societies to actually meet uh, uh, African men and women to marry, of course, women and men, um, to learn the local languages. Uh, this was their idea, the best way they could actually spread the Christian gospels. Um, where my work deviates, I would say, a little bit from Dr. Best's work um, is that I focus on some of the, the again, we, we, I would today ref- refer to this as an inherently violent thing still, um, where you begin to see missionaries embrace increasingly civilizational or, or national justifications to do what they thought was otherwise uh, a positive thing. That is, of course, expose African societies, so-called heathen societies, uh, uh, to the Christian gospel so they may enter uh, heaven, the Christian heaven. Um, uh, but, but that evolution is something that I think parallels with what happens, and this is what I talk about in the book, parallels to what happens later in the time period you're talking about after the turn of the 20th century. Missionaries go overseas, have an idea, have a a more maybe egalitarian attitude toward black Africans. And then over time, due to their experiences and some of the, frankly, defeats and challenges they experience, increasingly become more radical and violent in their uh, approach to their, their mission. 
The same thing happens after the colonial period officially begins. German go, Germans go overseas, uh, think they are going to conquer uh, this, uh, this territory, Namibia, uh, for all of these reasons and for all of these justifications, fail in many ways and, 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 and many times over, and increasingly as a result, become more limited in scope in terms of how they view uh, their decolonized populations, um, and also in doing so can then justify more and more horrific acts of violence, the most extreme of Gin being genocide. Uh, and so I think that, that they kind of parallel. And again, that, that again allows me to really demonstrate in, in throughout the entirety of the book how colonial encounters, and even if we want to call them pre-colonial encounters, force this evolution in thought and practice. Yeah. And, and so let, let's talk, you know, finally about the, the big takeaways and conclusions. Um, you know, you mentioned I, I interviewed Jeremy Best. I also interviewed Tiffany Forville in, in her book. Um, so I, I'm very curious if you could weigh in um, and talk a, a little bit about how to write Black German history after this. And, and I'm not just talking about the history of, of German colonialism, but I'm actually, you know, having in mind a larger modern German history or 19th century history, history after 1848. Um, what, what do you think your contribution is as, as a maybe like short concluding statement to building on the, the historiography? And, and here you can wear both hats as a German scholar and as an African historian. Sure. I would say the most significant contribution, and, and I hope it's big, but, you know, names like Tiffany Florville and, and so many others that are at the center of, increasingly at the center of, of, of emphasizing, and it's long overdue, uh, black German history, and, and not just in the colonial sphere, as you say, but, but in the metropole itself. The, the vital role uh, that these communities uh, played uh, in German history finally are coming out, and it's exciting. My contribution to that in, in this book is that, among other things, it demonstrates that Africans were not simply just passive victims in the face of colonial domination. Um, I, 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 again, I, I, I'm not suggesting that that is what people have uh, uh, said wholesale in the past, or the historiography has only presented Africans in that manner. But I think it has been at least alluded to or inferred because of some of the specific, uh, I'll say, plural foci uh, that, that has been at the center of a lot of scholarship the last 30 years. By emphasizing again, just how consequential a uh, Hendrik Fitboy, a, uh, uh, a Hannah uh, Kleinschmidt, who I know I didn't talk about, but one of these very early missionaries who was, again, so-called mixed race, but in, 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 in this way demonstrated just how uh, uh, significant and how influential they were in the, in the violent evolution of, of colonial occupation, but also then how um, they directly challenged colonial occupation. Uh, and finally, the, why we need to continue to do this kind of research because the focus on uh, a holistic perspective of, of modern German history is as important as ever. And in the case of colonial history is obviously alive and well, it's memory and it's legacy uh, from everything from the Humboldt forum in Berlin uh, mm. to of course yeah. uh, statues and monuments in Hamburg and elsewhere, all the way to the former colony of Namibia itself. Um, when I was there last in 2019, I stayed um, 
uh, on a street that still had a, um, a, a, a German colonial name. So this is the legacy is there. And I think in emphasizing this, that that demonstrates the need that we need even more of a focus on black German history. Yeah. And this is like a yes or no question for you, Adam. But but do you find the, the reparations and, and restitution debates going forward in, in Namibia? I mean, like based on your experience and, and not just Namibia, but I, I mean, how, how do you see that developing? Yes, they are going to go forward, in my opinion. I had a chance to meet with a couple of folks, no official delegation by any means, I don't want to suggest that, uh, but a couple of folks that, that are involved um, uh, to a degree with those this past summer when I was in Berlin. And the German government is currently at a, in, in a, taking a position that our offer and our negotiations are settled. Uh, the Namibian government, to a degree, uh, has has accepted that, but the the most important voices that uh, are also the loudest voices are uh, survivors uh, and and more accurately uh, the descendants of survivors, uh, Ovaharero, Nama, San, and other communities that say absolutely not. These negotiations and these treaties have not gone far enough, and so. I don't want to speak for any of these individuals, but I, I see it going forward because they're, while the fact that we're having these discussions finally in, in, in the global north is so important, we're not that there. And I admit I am not German. I, I am an outsider. Uh, but I, I see this going forward, and it's a necessary process to go forward. Yeah. Um, I'm watching it very carefully as a Ukrainian historian who's who's watching everything in Germany very carefully at the moment. So last question for you, um, if you could, for our listeners here at New Books Network, maybe recommend a couple of other books, um, it, not just in German studies, but maybe also African history or whatever your preference might be, and talk a little about your current research and current projects. This is, this is the, the last question for you today. Sure. Well, you mentioned Michelle Moy, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention violent intermediaries. You know, M- Michelle has, Dr. Moy, excuse me, has, uh, uh, you know, she, she's written a lot of recent things, including a really important chapter on women, uh, uh, African women uh, that participated in and against the German colonial experience during the First World War uh, in that volume I co-edited after the imperialist imagination. But so that chapter, um, uh, in addition to her seminal work, Violent Intermediaries, um, Marie Mouchalik came out uh, several years ago with a very important book uh, that demonstrates the continued significance of violence. Uh, It's entitled Violence as Usual. Um, Cornell Press, I believe it was two or three years ago now. Um, And it's about colonial Namibia, um, and it's not just the Herero genocide she talks about, but it's the daily, everyday application of violence from policemen walking a beat uh, to uh, the, the development of bureaucracy. Um, and that's something I think that, that I would encourage people to look into. Uh, Zoe Samudzi, um, her dissertation I know is finished. Uh, I don't know what her plans are, but uh, any and all things that she produces, uh, I would encourage um, a vital, uh, she's written a lot and and has been a vital advocate of of post-colonialism. And so I would really recommend her. Um, And then maybe finally, Matt Unangst uh, just wrote a book 
just came out on uh, German East Africa. I know I've mostly spoken about uh, Namibia up to this point, but Matt Unangst uh, is about um, the colonial experience, uh, not uh, mostly in the in the 19th century, um, but looking at how German officials and others, uh, um, people like Karl Peters, developed the idea of a protectorate uh, in mm-hmm. East Africa. So is I would say Zim- those four. Sorry, is that Zimbabwe mostly? or, or where, Mostly where Zimbabwe is, is what he's uh-huh. focusing on. Yes, okay. part of, yes, absolutely. Cool, um, thank you. And, yes. and, your, and your work, let's talk about you. So what are you yeah, working sorry. on? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 love, I love all of my colleagues and uh, 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 fellow scholars, I must say. It's, it, Dr. We- Eric White's always, always made fun of me for that. Um, uh, but yes, I'm really, thank you. I'm really excited as, as, as I'm one of these very few people I'm told that I'm not sick of this project. The book is, is coming out within the next two weeks, and yet I still love it. Uh, minus the violent topic. And so um, when I was in Germany this summer, I really started thinking about what was next. And so um, it's going to be a project um, tentatively titled uh, Outposts of Empire. Uh, And I'm looking at how the the legacy of colonialism continued in former African colonies, but also in Germany itself during the Weimar era. Um, uh, So everything from how Colonial societies continued to exist uh, to th- things like the Frauenbund uh, that uh, put on these big colonial balls and tried to reclaim uh, the, the, their so-called lost Heimaten, all the way to what uh, German expatriates and, and settlers that were allowed to stay in Africa, how they built colonial monuments, and what all of this says about the legacy of colonialism, but this continued focus on German identity. And of course, another time period that a lot of really violent uh, and chaotic things were occurring, obviously the Weimar era. So that's what I'm getting into right now. That's that's fabulous. And, and we know that Germans like to talk about Germans. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. let, let, let's let's hope for let's hope for more. I, I think your your book is is a really um, wonderful contribution on so many different levels, and and I want to congratulate you, Adam Blackler, on on this. It was a great pleasure to read your work, um, and just for our listeners here at New Books Network, um, this is Professor Adam Blackler who is teaching at the University of Wyoming, and the book just out is called An Imperial Homeland. Forging German Identity in Southwest Africa, 2022, out with Penn State, Pennsylvania University Press. Congratulations again, Adam, and and thank you so much for joining me, Stephen Siegel, here on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. I had a great time. Uh, And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel. Until next time here on New Books Network.